Well, good evening, everyone. I want to take this opportunity to welcome everyone here to Grace Church Campus, and of course, those joining on Facebook Live and live stream, we are so glad that you've chosen to be part of our service this evening, and I know it'll be a blessing to you. Isn't it great to be in the house of the Lord tonight? Amen, amen, and I think, as, as is our, our usual custom, I think it would be great to just start out tonight with a word of prayer, so if you would join me, let's raise our hands heavenward, lift our voice, and let's ask God to bless tonight. Jesus, we are so thankful for the opportunity to be in your house, to be in your presence, Lord, to hear from you and to study your word. I pray tonight that your anointing would flow, Lord, that your word would find its mark in our hearts, Lord, and that we would be drawn closer to you in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. By way of welcoming the presence of the Lord, would you just clap your hands to Jesus? Thank you, Lord. We praise you, Jesus. We love you, Lord. Thank the Lord. Thank the Lord. I do want to remind you just two uh, brief reminders. Uh, men's prayer this coming Saturday in the Alexander Center at 9 o'clock. So all of our gentlemen, if you would remember that, we are planning to come and pray this coming Saturday. And then just a very special reminder, very excited about this. On Sunday, June the 6th, we will be honoring all of our students and their academic achievements. Academic Awards Sunday, we're calling this. In order to honor your kids, we have to know about their accomplishments. And so we don't want to leave anybody out. So please make a note, parents, if you would let the church office know by June the 2nd, by my, by, by my calculation, I believe that's next Wednesday. So by next Wednesday, June the 2nd, please let the church office know about your students, your kids, what they've accomplished. And we're just going to take some time out of the service on Sunday, June 6th and honor them. I've been thinking about that service a little bit, and, and I, I thought, you know what? I can just imagine that there's a lot of kids in our church, a lot of achievements, a lot of awards, and we're just going to take our time. We're not going to get in a hurry. We're not going to just run through it, but we want each and every student to know how much we honor them and what they've done. <clears throat> Excuse me. So please make a note of that, and uh, it will be a blessing to your family. I had a verse of Scripture I've been meditating on and thinking of. You know it. We quote it all the time. Trust in the Lord. With all of your heart. Lean not into your own understanding. And here's the part I think that is the key to the whole thing. In all of your ways, acknowledge him. And he shall direct your path. So that means in, in every area of your life, talk to Jesus about it. In every area of your life, bring him in on it. In every area of your life, make him Lord of that situation. And if you do that, he will direct your path. I'm trusting Jesus today. I don't know what tomorrow holds. I don't know what is around the next curve in the road. But I do know who holds tomorrow, and my trust is in him. One more time, would you clap your hands to Jesus as pastor comes to lead us in Bible study. Thank you, Brother Dave. Great to see everybody here tonight. And uh, thank you so very much for coming. As always, we appreciate so very deeply you being here at Grace Church, and um, again, I have not forgotten, and neither am I taking for granted, how wonderful it is to be back on campus, uh, to be back on campus live, and uh, it's just a, it's just a wonderful, wonderful pleasure uh, and privilege uh, to be here tonight, and I'm so grateful to see all of you. Uh, wonderful service Sunday, as. Uh, well, I really wouldn't expect anything less, right? Uh, seems like it's always 
wonderful here on Sunday at Grace Church, and we're very thankful for that. And it's because Jesus is here, and uh, you being here even makes it better as well. So great to see all of you again here tonight. And I uh, want to jump right into Bible study tonight. I would like to talk about our uh, the third commandment uh, of, of the Ten Commandments. We'll talk about the third one tonight. And my, my title is a question, and I'd like for you to ponder it. Uh, I'm not always into sermon titles and all that. It, it makes it easier for live stream. If you want to look it up later on podcast or whatever, you can maybe find it later. Um, but I want to ask you a question tonight. Is Do you think God is really serious about being God? Think about that. I say that against the backdrop of this statement. I don't think we always take ourselves seriously. Um, I know children doesn't. Um, most teenagers don't really, you know, go down that path too often. And I even know a few adults that just really don't take themselves seriously. I don't think God has emotional issues. I don't think God has mental issues. Of all the, the hurt that he's experienced as a divine being, I, I still believe that God is, is mentally, emotionally healthy. If I can use those terms, I hope you understand our vernacular is very limited when it comes to talking about God. But, as, but all that he's been through throughout eternity with angels and demons and humans, um, I still believe tonight that God is, I think he's very healthy. Y'all are looking at me. I'm not setting a trap. I'm not you know, digging a, a hole here for everybody to fall into here in a minute. I'm just asking a question. Is God serious about being God? And that's my title tonight, because not only do we not take ourselves maybe as serious as we should in the things that we do, the places we go, the way we act, the words we say, those kind of things, we don't always take it as serious as we should. Um, I don't think we always take God as serious as we should either. But I don't believe God ever lets his guard down. And says, you know what, I'm just going to play around for a little while. I'm going to forget about being God. And I'm going to act like an angel for a while. I'm going to act like a, a, a person for a while. I don't think he ever does that. Have you ever thought about it that way? Let me put it in this perspective. When you're, I, I have no idea what it must be like in God's position to be God. I have no idea what that must be like to never have the possibility of failure to be completely all-powerful to never sin to never cheat steal all that none of that ever happens none of that has ever happened he is absolute perfection and he knows everything so i don't believe god has the i don't believe it's in the nature of god this is just my opinion i'm just I'm setting a platform for my Bible study tonight. I don't believe God has 
within his character, within his divineness. The ability, the capability to be anything but God. Buddy, I have got your attention right now. I just kind of feel the, the, the atmosphere in the room. Where in the world is Pastor going to be? Let me, let me say it this way. I read a number of years ago, and I believe it. If, if you want an idea about how big God is, we know that he fills the whole expanse of, of everything. I mean, there's nowhere you can go that God isn't. That God is not there. I don't believe there's anywhere you can go. In space, uh, it doesn't matter. Uh, I know we feel kind of hoity-toity sometimes when humankind makes big accomplishments. Uh, I know it's debated now that man ever went to the moon or not. There's people that believe they didn't. It was all a conspiracy theory thing. I don't know if they did or not. I wasn't on the spot with the rocket ship, so I can't vouch for any of it. But supposing they did. I mean, mankind thinks that that's a big, huge deal that they went to the moon safely and back and have done it several times. I read a number of years ago that if you wanted to go to the nearest star in our universe, the nearest star to us other than the moon, the, the first one past the moon, if you go past the moon, uh, past the sun, excuse me, if you go past the sun, the closest star past the sun, Flying in a rocket ship at 25,000 miles an hour, it would take four generations of people to get there. So you'd have to fly the rocket, have a baby, train that person to be a rocket pilot, and then that one would die, and they'd have to have a baby before they died. You'd have to do that four times, living a full entire length of years before you got to the closest star to us past the sun. Does that kind of bring things into perspective a little bit? Let me say it this way. If you could take the head of a straight pin, if you could take the head of a straight pin, how, what is the radius or the diameter of a straight pin, the head of a straight pin, whatever that is? A sixteenth of an inch or less? If it's possible to heat that up to the same temperature as the surface of the sun, it would burn a 65-mile diameter radius around it. That's how big God is. And I could go on and on and on with the, the space things like that. And God spoke all of that into existence. And according to Genesis 1, he put it all into perpetual motion by itself. Even though none of it has its own brain, it has... It's not, it has no computer in it to program the orbits and, and all of that that it does. Who knows how long it's been in existence. And God put it all in perpetual motion. The earth doesn't have a brain or computer system that keeps it rotating round and round and then going around the sun as it rotates round and round. Planets don't collide, none of that happens. And God put all of that in perpetual motion by speaking. And you don't have to touch it, don't have to tweak it. It was all perfect. Still is. So when you look at a, a being of that enormity and power, he's omniscient, he's omnipotent, he's omnipresent, 
Jesus, everything, everywhere. Do you think that he's serious about who he is? I would think so. I could stand here for a little while, and I'm not going to do it, but as far out as into space you can go with all the complexities and all the things we don't understand and can't figure out, you can do the same thing with the human body. <clears throat> I love the illustration of where two scientists tried to convince God one time that they could make a man. And God said, okay, well, show me. And they said, well, we'll be right back. Let me go get some dirt. And God said, no, 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 make your own dirt. Does that kind of bring it into perspective a little bit? The cheapest commodity on this planet, man can't make it either. But if you take the enormity of the human body, try to, to figure out your eyeball and how that works. And when you're done with that, you can go to your ear and then your heart. Every organ in our body is just intricate and amazing, every last one of them. And God made that out of dirt and cause it to come alive with his breath. So is God serious about being God? In Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, the Bible said, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that takes his name in vain. That's a pretty serious statement. God cares and is serious about the way we talk about him. There was a man named Paul Dickinson that has written a book called Names. I understand he has a hobby of collecting unusual names. Sometimes names seem to be prophetic. So in his book, he has all these names and there's... According to this author, there is a man named Joe Bunt who became a baseball coach. There's a man named Jeff Treadwell that became a podiatrist. There's a man named, now this is kind of a stretch for me, but Dickinson says it, so, you know, whatever. A man named Dan Druff became a barber. Um, this is another stretch for me, but two police officers who became partners, one was named Goforth and the other one was named Ketchum. Uh, he wrote that there were two people that became partners in a church equipment business. One of them was named O'Neill and the other one was named Prey. A plaster contractor was named Will Crumble. I think all of that is a stretch, but it's what the man said. So what is in a name anyway? What is in a name? Uh, a lot when it's the name of God. There's a lot in a name when it's the name of God. So why is God in the third commandment so sensitive about his name? It's because we understand, at least on a human level, that your name, my name, represents at least three things. When your name is spoken among people who know you, it represents three things. First of all, it's your reputation. 
And we have all learned that it can, you spend a lifetime building a reputation, but you can lose it in just a short moment. That's why it is so common for us to say about people that, well, they're just trying to make a good name for themselves. Or so-and-so has a good name. He's, so-and-so's got a bad name. Um, have you ever wanted to hire a contractor to come do some work at your house? What's the first thing you do, if you have any sense, is you find out who the guy is. You find out what his reputation is like. So when we say a name, we automatically think of perhaps a reputation. When you think of Adolf Hitler, what do you think? When you think of Elvis Presley, what do you think? When you think of Queen Elizabeth, what do you associate with these people's names? So your, your, your name kind of represents your reputation. Number two, your name is, is represented in your character. You, you cannot be separated from your character and your name. They become interwoven together. They are in a, identified together. In the Bible, when somebody changed their character, God oftentimes changed their name for them, as in the case of Abram and Jacob and Sarai and Simon. All of these people had their character changed by God, and God renamed them. So your character is associated with your name. Number three, your authority is associated with your name. Now, back in the old days when you were running from a police officer, he would say, stop, in the name of the law. They do that now, nobody stops. <laughs> it's sad, but true. I do. I, I think it's kind of the smarter thing to do in the long run. But anyway, but I've never had a cop say that to me. So, But I promise you I would stop. I don't know what you'd do, but I'd stop. But it's uh, your name is represented in authority as well. If, if a solicitor called you while you were eating dinner, you might return the call later. But if someone popular or famous called while you were eating dinner, you would take the call immediately. All of you hubbies, if your wife calls, as I have learned the hard way during lunch, it's in your best interest to answer. There's an authority there that you have to be married to recognize. Uh, when you misuse God's name, when you defame his reputation when you misuse his name you defame his reputation you insult his character you dispute and discount his authority this is what God is saying in the third commandment because you're using his name so nonchalant without the respect and the reverence that he deserves. Let me ask you this. I hear people say often out in, in worldly places, I've not heard church people say it, but something good, bad, and different will happen and they'll, their response is, Jesus. Have you ever heard people say that? Or Jesus Christ or whatever. It offends me so bad. If you challenge people 
and said, do you know that you are, you are just completely misusing God's reputation? You're, you're, you're misrepresenting his character, his authority and all that. And they say, well, I don't mean to. That's not what I mean. So what you're saying is, if I walked up and called you a horrible name and you got offended and I said, well, I didn't mean that. That's not what I meant. Do you think that would play out okay? Why are y'all looking at me? Is something wrong? I can't see everybody real good with all the lies. I'm getting this stare from people like my hair's messed up or something. Maybe I should have wore a necktie. Is that part of the deal here? I'm in the Bible. I'm pretty sure I'm teaching the Bible tonight. You'll say, well, we're just listening. But it's a look on your face that's got me confused. But uh, when people swear, um, when people use the name of God and when people swear, um, they're misusing the name of God. It's showing incredible disrespect to his authority, to his character, to his reputation. I want everybody to understand that. Whether you mean it or not, whether you feel justified or not, and just remember that if anybody walked up to you and, and just used a real insulting name, that had to do with you, around you, how would you feel about it? Even though you didn't mean it or you got caught up in the moment. So if I smashed my finger and just said, Owen Cooper. See, he's doing this right here. But how would that make him feel? I mean, if, if, if. Something horrible and tragic. And, and the only word I could think of to express my hatred, my frustration, and all that was Owen Cooper. What would that, what, why are you using my name? What, what do I have to do with this? So where does God, what does he think? Well, he said it very clearly in the third commandment. If you have frustration or anxiety or anger and all of that, and you want to express it, don't use my name to do it. And I, as a matter of fact, I don't want you even cursing and swearing because it offends me when you do that. So even though you don't mean it, God takes it as though you did. He said, I will not find a person guiltless. You have no justification for taking the name of the Lord in vain. So how do we, how do we know what the name of God is? Well, let me give you a little little. Bible lesson real quick on that. In the Old Testament, God used several names to refer to himself. Let's mention the two most important ones. God revealed his name to Moses. Now, I'm going to use the word name here, a way to identify God. We didn't really learn his name until we get to the New Testament, but people could identify him. Uh, when Moses was at Mount Horeb, when, he called, when, when God called Moses to be Israel's deliverer from Egypt. Now think of what God is asking him to do and said, I want you to do this in the name of blank. So he's got Moses' undivided attention. God is fixing to give him a commandment to do something that is virtually impossible on this planet, impossible to do. Moses, I want you to go. And stand up to the most mighty military force on this planet and tell them to let my people go. And if they don't let them go, you tell them the I am said to let them go. And that'll do it. We all know the story. Pharaoh laughed at the first time Moses said that. But after he said it about 10 or 15 more times, 
and Pharaoh's firstborn baby died, his little boy died, it wasn't funny anymore. He started taking God serious. So when God said, I am that I am, I am the I am, I am it. There's no above me, there's none beside me, none of that. It refers to God being the eternal and self-existent one. He was not created by another God. We, we, we can't figure all that out, but he wasn't. As I've said, he was omnipotent, he's omnipresent, he's omniscient. It is also a Hebrew idiom meaning, when you get there, Moses, I'll be there. It's, it was something the Hebrew people understood. When God said, I am that I am, to them he was saying, when you get to Egypt, I will be there. God encouraged Moses that I will always be what you need me to be and I will always be there before you get there. That's what God was saying to Moses. So you don't have anything to fear. The God that's caught this bush on fire and the bush isn't burning up, that's who is sending you to do this task. So don't worry about anything. It's going to be okay. I'm going to be there when you get there. One country preacher said, I am means that God ain't ever short and he ain't ever late. Another preacher said God meant I am everything you need. Another important Old Testament name for God is we would pronounce it Yahweh. But to the Jewish people, it's what you're seeing on the screen. It's just the four. We would trans, it's been translated into the English language, four letters, Y-H-W-H, which came from four consonants in Hebrew, and it's called a tetra grammaton so to actually translate this name into english we would probably say the eternal when god says i am the ant the i am we would say according to the moffat translation that god is eternal so the closest we can come to pronouncing this name would be yahweh or its english form which is jehovah the jews had such reverence for the name of god in the old testament during this period that they would not pronounce it as it was written. Instead, they called it the infallible name. They would substitute the word Adonai, which means Lord, or Hashem, the name, when referring to it. They would not say Yahweh. They had such reverence for the name of God, Yahweh, as they did not feel like they were humanly worthy to even say His name. But I want you, all of us, to understand here tonight, God's commandment was not against pronouncing His name. It was a prohibition against misusing His name. So let's jump to the New Testament. God accompanied the revelation of Himself in flesh with a new name, and that name is Jesus, who includes and supersedes Yahweh in all the Old Testament names. Jesus is, as we know, is the redemptive name of God, in the New Testament, it is the name of supreme power and authority. According to the book of Acts, it is the only saving name. It is the name given for the remission of sin, and it's the highest name ever revealed. So understand, Jesus, according to the New Testament, is the name of God. So when you're having a frustrating moment and use that name to express your frustration, Think about how God is taking that. Because I believe God takes being God 
very seriously. Jesus is the Greek form of Joshua or Yahshua, which means Yahweh is salvation. So suddenly, according to Scripture, a carpenter from Nazareth is casually using the unutterable name of God to describe himself. But Jesus had a right to do that because he was God. The Jewish leaders were outraged. They understood who Jesus was claiming himself to be. The phrase, I am, that Jesus used a number of times in the New Testament. It is uh, a Greek translation appearing to us just as another pronoun and verb. But it identified God as Yahweh. So when Jesus said in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. He's not just saying I am the bread of life. He's saying the eternal being is the bread of life. When he said, I am the light of the world, he said, the eternal being, the eternal one is the light of the world. He said, I am the door, I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. If you believe not that I am, the word he is in italics in the King James Version. He said, if you believe not that I am, you'll die in your sin. Only God can make those kind of statements, right? To the soldiers, I love this in John 18. Wish we had time to do a little bit more Bible study on it. But to the soldiers arresting him, two times they came and said, Are you Jesus of Nazareth? And he said, I am. The word he is in italics. He said, I am. This is God speaking to you. And the Bible said they fell backward. They fell on the ground. It knocked them down. Literally. They're flat on their back. They struggle to get up and they come and ask him the same question again. And the same thing happens. It happened twice. God proving out of the mouth of two witnesses that I can utter my identity. I can just say it in a normal voice. I am. And I'll knock you flat on your back. God is serious about being God. To the high priest at his trial, which was a joke, he said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. The, the Sanhedrin court was enraged by this, and they rushed their prisoner to Pilate and forces him to carry out an execution through political pressure. Pilate is powerless to save Jesus, the Nazarene, even though he wants to. He washes his hands of the whole deal, tries to. But in a very unusual move, Pilate himself writes an inscription and ordered it placed on the cross over the head of Jesus. The Bible said in John 19, Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. This title then read many of the Jews for the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh to the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, the three most common languages back then that everybody that went by that cross could read who it was that the Jews had nailed to that cross. Then, the chief, then said the chief priest to the, of the Jews to Pilate, write not the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am king of the Jews. And Pilate answered what I've written, I've written. I believe Pilate had a greater revelation of who he was than the Jewish people did. So in three languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, it says Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, just another epitaph to the Greeks and Romans but as many of the Jews, the Bible said, began to gather and read the inscription, the chief priests see that they have a problem. Literally, Pilate says, what I have written, I will not change one bit. 
What was the problem that so upset these scholars of the law? Notice this tonight. This is interesting to me. It's always been very interesting to me. Much of the Old Testament poetic literature was written in acrostic form, and it made it easier for those who studied the Scripture, particularly the Psalms, uh, it made it easier to memorize. For example, in Psalm 119, what we consider the longest psalm or chapter of the Bible, it's divided into 22 sections. It's labeled by one letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And each of the eight verses in that section starts with that letter. In the book of Lamentation, each of the chapters is a poem with a similar pattern. Written over Jesus' head, I'll have them put it on the screen. I can't pronounce it. This is what the Jewish people read. All of the Jewish leaders could see. All they could see was a condemning acrostic as the first letter of each word spelled that Y-H-V-H of the Old Testament. It's for everybody to see. And Pilate did that on purpose. He literally, this word, these words you see on the screen, is literally saying to the Jews, to the Greeks, to everybody, this is the eternal one. And the Jews had him nailed to the cross. That's what Pilate is saying. And that's why they were so outraged. It was not a carpenter's blood that was being shed that day on Calvary. But it was Yahweh's blood. And that's what essentially Pilate was having spelled out over the head of Jesus. This is your God that you've rejected and you've nailed him to a cross. God's name is Jesus. We worship God and we certainly reverence and respect and worship his name. So quickly tonight, let me give you ways that we misuse the name of God. First of all, we use God's name to insult with. We insult people and things with the name of God. This is when you use profanity or swearing to express irritation at a situation or to demean someone else. Our world today is the most foul mouth world. I believe our nation is the most foul mouth nation in the world and becoming more and more so. We lack so much respect on every level in our country today, in my opinion. We don't respect hardly anybody for anything. And we certainly don't respect God. I'll be very blunt and plain. The most well-known garbage mouths in our society are comedians who are paid to take the Lord's name in vain hundreds of times every night on late-night television. Our government officials swear. Presidents swear. Uh, everybody does. Police officers swear. There's, there's no respect, and we all know that. I believe tonight that people who swear and use profanity lack emotional control and maturity. Swearing takes no intellect. You can teach a three-year-old to swear. I've even heard of people that teach their parrot to swear. But it takes a whole lot of maturity and discipline to control your speech. 
A farmer was late getting home for dinner one night and his wife asked, did the wagon break down? The farmer said no, but on the way home, I offered a ride to the minister and from that point on, the mule didn't understand a thing I had to say. And that illustrates the point. So when you swear and use profanity, even though you're caught up in a moment, an emotional moment of good or bad, it could be your first baby or you could have just waylaid your thumb with a hammer. Either way, when you use profanity, you're taking the name of God in vain and God said, I will not hold anyone guiltless who does that. In other words, you're never justified to do it. I was talking to a minister several years ago and I've never forgotten it and we were talking about various frustrations of ministry and, and things you go through. And I'll never forget what he said. He said, man, it would just be amazing if we could just curse in a good Christian way. And I uh, thought, you know what? If I can be very human here, the man had a point. It just kind of make you feel good for a minute. I'm saying that in jest. But the Bible teaches us not to do that. And so we do. The second way we take the name of God in vain is we, we use God's name to indulge. This is when we excuse our actions by blaming God for them instead of taking personal responsibility. It's when you do something stupid and blame God for it. Or when something tragic happens in your life and you blame God for it, but it was really on you. These people always say, and I've heard it, I've heard it for years. I've heard this. I'm going to be honest with you as pastor. I've heard it so much where it is so not true that it makes me question now every time I hear it. Every, it doesn't matter who walks up to me and says, Pastor, I felt led to do so and so. I just felt led to do it. I've got to where anytime anybody walks up and says that to me, I, I, I put up a, 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 I just go kind of hands linked. I'm, I'm very sorry for that because I have seen God through the years mislead so many people. It's been amazing. God spoke to me and said, I believe what people are really feeling is I'm setting this up in case I do it anyway or don't do it, whatever the case may be. And if it doesn't work out, I can blame God for it. You're taking the name of God in vain when you do that. Be careful, folks, when you say to anybody, I felt led or I feel led that God is asking me to do this and that. People say things like, God will let me know if he wants me to do so and so, or if God, he'll let me know if he doesn't want me to do that. Again, you're setting God up as someone to blame if it fails. And then you're setting yourself up that if it succeeds, you'll take the credit. You're taking the name of God in vain. God said in Leviticus 19.12, You shall not swear by my name falsely. Neither shall you profane the name of thy God. I am the Lord. Our, our, our feelings must be subject to the word of God. What Leviticus is saying here is do not make a promise in my name if you do not intend to keep it or if you can't keep it. It always brings disgrace to my name when you do that, God is saying. So when we claim God's approval on something that is clearly not his will, we're breaking the third commandment. The third thing we do is we use God's name to intimidate. This is when we claim God's direction for something that is of our own making. In Hebrew, the third commandment says, No lifting up of the Lord's name as an endorsement. Or you are not to take up the name of Yahweh your God for emptiness. 
We would say no stealing the Lord's name is how we would say it. So how do we steal God's name? We do it by applying it to places and things that doesn't belong. Anytime we misrepresent God, we're taking his name in vain. Some kids try to do this, uh, or excuse me, some people try to do this with their spouse, and they even do it with their kids. They'll say, I've prayed about this, and God wants me or us to do so and so. Other people try to use this on their pastor. They come for counseling. I've had this happen recently. Someone came and adamantly said, God spoke to me, God led me, God told me, God moved me, and said it over and over and over. And less than 24 hours later, I got a phone call expressing how God changed his mind. And I'm not exaggerating the story. As a matter of fact, I'm not embellishing it enough. It was sad and it was tragic. When people walk in, actually what you're doing is trying to use God as leverage to indulge yourself in something you want to do and then you're going to say, God told me to do it. And then you want permission from somebody. And in our culture, in our world today, you'd call this actually, you'd call it forgery. Forgery is when you use somebody else's name to get what you want. There's a lot of spiritual forgers in the world today who say that God told me. Be careful about speaking for God. The fourth thing we do is use God's name to impress. And this is when we try to prove how spiritual we are with religious jargon and cliches. Insecure Christian people do this often when you're insecure. Talk doesn't impress God. Lifestyle does. So don't turn God into a cliche. We take God's name in vain. We claim to be committed to him, but we just don't back it up with our lifestyle. It's just words. Paul wrote to Titus and said, They profess that they know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable and disobedient, and unto every good work reprobate. One translation said, Some people claim they know God, but they deny Him by the way they live. They are despicable and disobedient, worthless for doing anything good. It's using God's name to indulge yourself. I'm glad our young people, our students, and our, our kids are in here tonight. Thank you for being here. The fifth thing we do to take the name of God in vain is when we use God's name impulsively. And this is when we use God's name without thinking as a convenient expression of fear or anger or joy or amazement or surprise, we reduce God to a level of wow or far out, dude. We reduce God down to that. You really need to be able to say all these words to illustrate the point, but I'm not going to do that. Um, I hope you understand what I'm saying. God says to use his name seriously. Impulsively means to use the name of God without thinking. And you will say, as I illustrated at the very beginning, well, I didn't mean it that way, but God took it that way. Call your spouse an idiot and then say, I didn't mean it, and see how quick they get over it. Y'all understand me? Am I... You take the name of the Lord in vain when you're in church singing a song about him. But you're just going through the motions. 
or even when you're praying in his name, but your mind is a million miles away. It's using God's name impulsively. You're not there. You're not present. The Bible said in Isaiah 29, 13, Wherefore the Lord said, For as much as people draw near me with their mouth and with their lips do honor me, they have removed their heart from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men, which don't be afraid of God is not a big deal. Jesus even said, when you pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do. For they, that, uh, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. When you can't think of what to say next in prayer, just stop. God understands silence sometimes. You don't have to press people around you. George Barna found that 66% of North Americans admit to having taken the Lord's name in vain. But I think everyone is guilty. I think everyone is guilty of it on some occasion. Exodus 20 verse 7 again. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless. That taketh his name in vain. So how do I use the name of God correctly in conclusion tonight? The psalmist said for thou O God has heard my vows. Thou hast given me the heritage of those that fear thy name. There are many verses in the Bible that promise God's blessing on our lives if we honor his name. How do we do that? Number one, we reverence God's name continually. God is never a joke, and his name is never a joke ever. Never, ever. Not ever. There's never an occasion. God said, I will not hold him guiltless. So we reverence his name continually. We must treat God's name with the utmost respect using it carefully and lovingly as an act of worship. The psalmist said, Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. We can't just sit by and let the Lord's name be blasphemed in what we listen to, what we watch, and what we participate in. Love demands action. So what does this have to do with building healthy homes and so on? Verbal abuse is rampant in families today. But you can't truly honor the name of the Lord and be verbally abusive to others at the same time. In other words, if you can't curse in a Christian, good Christian way, you can't be abusive to your spouse or family or kids in a good Christian way either. We represent God's name clearly. Our lifestyle can either lift up the Lord's name or drag it through the gutter. Our walk needs to match our talk. If we're a Christian, then you represent Christ and you do it well. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are his. And let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity, the Bible said. So there are two reasons why people, many people, never come to Christ. is one, because they've never met a Christian. Or they've only met a Christian who is in name only. A Christian in name only. Number three, we rely on God's name completely. This is how you reverence the name of God. You rely on his name completely. Why do we pray in Jesus' name? Because we don't have any right to pray in our own or on our own merit. The Bible said, whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Someday we'll be judged for every idle word that we speak. And this is one of the most frightening words, verses in the Bible. Jesus said, but I speak unto you that every idle word... That men shall speak, they shall give an account thereof in the day of judgment. 
So people who swear and misuse the name of the Lord show that they have a heart problem. But people who worship with their mouth and their life and their heart show that God is truly the God of their life. Jesus said, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is good and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is evil. For of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaketh. In other words, the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. So, be careful, little mouth, what you say. What you say to God and certainly what you say to others. It, it frightens me tonight. We say we're all human and I do thank God, Brother James, for grace. I thank God for repentance. I thank God for forgiveness, and he's faithful and just to forgive. But it's just hard sometimes to control your mouth, to control your tongue, to control your thoughts and actions. And I'm glad tonight we have an advocate with the Father that when we do fail, when we do sin, we can run to him, and God is quick to forgive. And we do better the next time. And everybody said amen. So tonight, as you're dismissed, be kind to people. And certainly, be careful how you use the name of God. Thank the Lord. God bless you tonight. Great to be here. Great to see all of you. And we'll look forward to seeing all of you Sunday. You're dismissed. Thank you for coming tonight. Over and over.